Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Headquarters of the future capital of the free thinking state of America known as Los Angeles. This is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, our old pal Dallas monk Arthur Rosenfeld returns with another great conversation, including his upcoming books, The Awesomeness of Turtles, A Chance Encounter in a Chinese Restaurant, The Cardinal Sin of Writing Fiction. Guy Leakley's Dao De Cheng, Tom Robbins, Inspiration Over Entertainment, and a Chinese solution to ISIS. Damn, these shows are good. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 77 of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Back with another fine interview today. But before we get to the interview, we get to introduce you to my friend, Ben Daniele Bordelli. I'm Cup- stuttering. <laughs> I have that effect on people. <sighs> couple of quick pieces of news um, so we got in, well this is not really news anymore but in case you haven't checked out History on Fire podcast yet please do check it out you're last if you haven't yeah it's kind of weird it's blowing up to a level that I I mean I expected it to do well I didn't expect it quite to go this far it's been insane seeing the numbers come in um, cool I'm happy with that so in case you haven't checked it out check it out should be fun for you uh, if it's not, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Just plain. <laughs> but uh, no, a couple of pieces of um, news to share with you guys. So news number one, I believe today, the day when uh, this episode comes out, should be the release date for my new book, uh, Not Afraid. It's found on Amazon. I'll put the Amazon link in the episode notes or um, you also can find it like all of my books. If you go to com, you'll find there the book covers on the front page. Click on that. That way there's an Amazon link directly that goes to where Amazon give us a cut, which is always sweet. Did you uh, Were you reminded of that from the big French protest from the uh, Charlie Hebdo attack? Yeah, I thought that was for me. I thought they were all just sharing just uh, the news the of my, the book. I was very bummed out to find out that that wasn't the case. That's probably one of my favorite pictures of that year. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a great picture. And, um, and I do, I have also, uh, I'm recording right now an audiobook version of it. So there should be... Now, should be in the tentative world of operation here. I don't know when it's going to come out because I'm recording at record speed. But recording in LA, you have no idea. I mean, right now we're recording in a studio. is more or less silent. Recording at home sometimes is like you record and then there's the airplane goes by and then there's the truck with the giant engine and then there's a police siren. And so it's a bit challenging. And the rain is coming soon. Yeah, there's all of that stuff. And um, and the other thing is uh, I need to make sure the website is set up, you know, all of this stuff. But assuming, I will let you know. 
as soon as it's out. If by any chance it's out in the time between we are recording this opening and when we put together the episode notes and post the episode, it will be in the episode notes, the link on where to find the audio version in case you prefer the suave sound of my glorious Italian accent to reading it on paper. Hour after hour after hour. Yeah, if you want to instead read it, Amazon is your best bet. And uh, but yeah, that's when what I read said. it. I heard your voice in my head, so I'm like, well, I never that. heard that before. Oh, yeah, I, uh, really, nobody like, ever said that to me. Oh, no, a uh, creature on religion, same thing, every page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those the Buddhists, they are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and they got to some nice things. Take elements seven and four, yeah. Okay? But that was uh, an intense book to write, kind of gut wrenching, so it's um. Pretty intense, I can tell you that much. Um, but yeah, again, if you guys want to check it out, that would be great. Other thing that I'm going to put a link in the episode notes about this. Um, there's uh, I'm involved with um, one of our former guests, Albert Ohanian, um, operating Float Clinic. We have this crazy idea combining, kind of creating a modern social center, sort of a gathering place for... Strip club and gambling den. That would be nice, but and I guess that could be a modern, you know... A, oh, that was a different conversation. A gathering Sorry. place for like-minded people. But no, these, the, some of the key elements would be flotation tanks, slash martial arts school, slash uh, yoga classes, slash a venue for live podcasting, something like a juice bar or something just to give create the Starbucks atmosphere that would allow people to just walk in, sit down, hang out, not just go in and do your float and get out, go in, do your martial arts class and get out, but really create sort of a a community gathering place where you can hang out and meet like-minded people. Communities come up a lot today. Yeah, it's a big theme and I think it's a uh, it's not a coincidence. It's a big theme because it's a, it's a crucial theme to life itself in a lot of ways and it's the fact that we have moved so far away from uh community, from tribes, from all of that. Uh, I think it fulfills a need. So if you guys want to check it out, there's an Indiegogo page to where beginning, you know, the first phase is to raise a little funds to make it semi-viable. Um, then get investors for whatever we can f- fill in. But, you know, that's the plan right now. And those craps tables are like 80 grand a piece with a nice one. So <laughs> Yeah, there's uh, there's all of that, right? The, Come on, seven! Yeah, so we'll... Um, yeah, if you guys can check those, uh, the, this one as well. And now, moving on to everything else, big, huge, giant thank you to the three sponsors who stand by us through Thick and Thin, Datsusara, Onnit.com, and Sure Design. Um, somebody somebody alerted me that Sure Design, the link that I put in one of the History on Fire podcasts, did not link to Sure Design T-shirts, but to Sure Design sheets, which was not clearly meant. Sure Design shit. Yeah, well, I guess I missed the letter or something, or I wrote it wrong. But yeah, that was not a good thing. Yikes. Yeah, no, my mistake. Um, no, Sure Design, you know. Awesome, the great. Uh, guess what I'm wearing today? Yeah, Look at yeah, that. Yeah, Short yeah. design t shirt. That's one of the best ones right there. The Acapulco Gold with all the Mayan dudes all over it is quite awesome. Yeah. Or perhaps Aztec. Uh, something. Mayan. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite developed enough to distinguish based purely on the glyphs. Something South America? No? That's no, Central America. Yeah, Central America. Yeah. The, oh, and speaking of T-shirts, we're actually going to have an EQ Sojun shirt yes! coming up on with the design of the glorious Savannah M. So I wonder if there'll be any boobs or booze in this one. I wonder. Hmm. Yeah, because so far our T-shirts have been too politically correct. So let's take it one step further. Excellent. 
the um, again i don't know if this is ready i mean not the t-shirts are not ready but if the pre-order page is ready by the time we air this one or not if it is check in the episode notes if you find it great if you don't find it my guess is that it will be ready and i will have it in there um but um yeah if you want to pre-order because that makes it so much easier to make sure we have all the right sizes and all the right stuff i don't know that we're gonna overstock it much so we may not but in any case, back to thanking Datsusara, Onnit, and Shore Design. You guys know the drill. They have amazing products. Please support them. They are good people and they help us out. Having said that, let's get down to business with our interview with Mr. Arthur Rosenfeld. Gone! Ladies and gentlemen, here we are, back, Drunken Taoist, here with us for the third round, Mr. How do we even introduce you? Taoist name, uh, your... Uh, formerly known as... Formerly known, the artist formerly known as Arthur Rosenfeld, <laughs> I say that's... <laughs> or uh, you know in the new version, the... How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. Glad to be here. Excellent. I dig that part. Let's go play. So let's see how a lot of stuff has happened since the last time we had you on the Drunken Taoist. Let's go play with some of the projects you have going on right now. Please do tell. So I want to tell you the tale of this particular book, which I think speaks to the creative process speaks to the way deep and meaningful projects so often unfold. Mm -hmm. Speaks to the unpredictability of life, love, art, happiness, story, all of the above. So, you know, I have this lifelong love affair with turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody laughs when they hear this and people who come to my home and see 400 pound tortoises walking around in my backyard are often surprised to say the least but this is a lifetime uh, involvement and if you ask me why I, I don't really know sometimes things are just the way they are things appeal to us we don't know why it may be a previous life it may be Something in my childhood, I can tell you that I was allergic to animals with hair. When I was a kid, I couldn't have a dog or cat. I, I don't know. I caught a little turtle in a pond in Connecticut in a little river uh, when I was nine years old. And I, I think there's something about the portability of shelter, that shell. I think there's something about the two or three hundred million years of evolutionary persistence. I think there's something about the mammalian-like level of alertness, which is so different from the slow story of, you know, the tortoise and the hare. And what mm -hmm. most people think of a turtle is basically, you know, a rock right. uh, that's alive, which couldn't be further from the truth. And so in my early career in academics and zoology and veterinary medicine, 
I really explored reptiles and turtles in particular, and I came to have a great affection for them. And now, these days, I find myself obsessed almost with the fact that we are erasing them mm -hmm. systematically from the planet. Whether it's because of the Chinese trade in Asian turtles that are alleged to increase your virility or cure cancer or do whatever else they say they're going to do. I think I was uh, mentioning on that before the podcast today how I read, I think I read it on Facebook or something, somebody, their joke about how to get rid of ISIS was just tell the Chinese <laughs> that if you eat their brain or something, it's good for your virility yeah. and they would be wiped out in no time. Yeah, it's, it's, um, people sometimes mistake my adoration for a, a fantastical Chinese traditional ancient culture, which really no longer exists. I have mm -hmm. a romantic fascination with that. Anyway, so, you know, I, 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 I wrote, I got the idea. Maybe I, I thought about the, the novel Ishmael, where there's a, a sentient uh, ape, uh, or Jonathan Livingston Seagull mm -hmm. years ago, or Watership Down with the, with the rabbits, uh, Life of Pi with the tiger. For, for whatever reason, long time back, as early as 1990, I was messing around with this idea of a, of a story about a, a sentient giant tortoise. And the mechanism of its sentience, you know, was different and, you know, kind of struck by lightning kind of thing, like a superhero, mm -hmm. you know, bitten by a poisonous spider or whatever. Something happened to yeah. wake to wake up its intelligence and make it this character, which sort of was emblematic of and totally sympathetic to, sensitive to, viscerally aware of man's uh, rape and pillage of the natural world. So I wrote an early draft of this novel. And I showed it around to some friends, and one day I got a, a phone call from a, a very, very famous New York agent named Sterling Lord. I believe he passed away recently, but he was one of the most powerful literary agents in New York for decades. And he said that he had read this manuscript, and I said, wow, how'd you get it? And he said, you know, so-and-so gave it to me. And he said, I, I would like to represent it, and you. And at that time I was living in L.A., and he was in New York, and uh, I, I know it sounds terrible to, to, to say this, to admit this, but I, had, I have this feeling, which I, you know, I retain to this day, which is that if somebody's going to represent me out there in the world, I really have to feel comfortable with them and know them. And even though this was a famous guy and I was incredibly flattered and excited, I said to him, you know, I, I really feel like if you're going to represent me in my work, I need to shake your hand and look you in the eye mm -hmm. because he wanted to FedEx me a contract. So he said, no problem. Um, I've got things to do in L.A. I'll just come out in, in, in a, to L.A. And, and take you out to lunch. And if you like mm -hmm. me, you'll sign with me. And this was really a dream for a young writer. And So he did, and he did take me out to lunch. And I did like him very much. And so he, he took the book, and he gave it to uh, someone he had working for him, an editor. And I worked with this young lady on it. And we worked back and forth for some months on the book. And he had changes and she had changes that they wanted. And I realized slowly, as they suggested these things, that somehow this was going in a direction which wasn't quite right. And I resisted the changes. Mm -hmm. And as I so often have done 
um, you know, aimed a 44 Magnum at the area between my own legs. I, uh, uh, you know, I pulled the trigger and I said, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really think that's right. And so we, we dissolved our business relationship. And that's and because I, fundamentally they were trying to push changes that they, they were not they, comfortable they were, with. And, and I don't really think it was their fault. Mm -hmm. I think that, and this is sort of part of the reason for the whole story, is I think that I was aware there was something wrong Not, not wrong, but there was something missing from mm -hmm. the story. There was something, key ingredient that I yeah. wasn't. And they were trying to fill, to add that ingredient to the pie from their own mm -hmm. cupboard. Sure. And I, I wasn't comfortable with, you know, the, with the fruits and, and vegetables they had in their cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted it from my cupboard, but I didn't yeah. know. Even as, I really didn't even understand what was going on well enough to articulate that. Mm -hmm. But anyway. So 23 years went by during which time I wrote a number of other books, some of which did very well, sold some novels to Hollywood and nonfiction books and so on. And that story remained alive in my mind very much in that character of that sentient tortoise. And then one day I was bopping around Asia and frankly I don't remember whether I was in Vietnam or I was... Thailand, but I think it was one of those two countries. And I went to a Taoist temple. So this was outside of China. Um, and, you know, Taoist temples are different than Buddhist temples. But uh, one thing that it suddenly struck me, even though I'd been to countless of them, I'd somehow never really mm -hmm. thought about this before. And it seems really stupid and strange to admit this, but they all have ponds full of turtles hmm. out front. And many of them have statues, big statues of tortoises and turtles. And for some reason I missed in all my years of Taoist study how what a strong relationship there is between Taoism and the symbol of the turtle and between Lao Tzu and the turtle. And That some, seems bizarre considering you're obsessed with turtles yeah, and you go to Taoist things all the I, time. I, you know, maybe... Maybe I noticed it, but I never connected it back to the book. Right. Right. So, I mean, I have pictures of myself sure. standing with the turtles or yeah. looking at the turtles or pictures of the turtles. I don't mean to say I never noticed there were turtles sure, there, sure, but sure. what I mean is that I never thought about it in connection with this sort of on-again, off-again yeah. novel idea. Yeah. And then one day it just, it just occurred to me, wait a second, you know, the history of Chinese civilization, the old ancient civilization, traditional culture with which I've been so obsessed for decades, which I've written about and studied so much, rests on the shoulders of basically three guys, Confucius, Buddha, and Lao Tzu. And Lao Tzu is, is like, a, you know, you and I often talk about the fictional nature of... Right, that's one of the issue about Lao Tzu, that there's next to nothing about him. And what we do have about him is pretty much certainly legendary. You know, in terms of actual history... Good luck with that. You know, there really is no solid, uh, strong history that one can say for sure this is what... I mean, there's even debates. And as we mentioned before, there are plenty of scholars who argue that Lao Tzu didn't never existed, that it was a compilation of uh, writings from several different people, possibly. So we have this kind of mysterious uh, phantom character at the origin of Taoism. And so officially he's the founder of Taoism. In, rea in reality, we don't even know if he even lived Right. And, and I think, so there's a bunch of, uh, you, you hit on a bunch of key things. Number one, I, I tend to view all these quasi-mystical, 
uh, religious founders, these legendary characters, and I don't care whether it's Jesus sure. or Moses or I, 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 I regard them all as fictional characters. When I say that, does it mean that I'm concretely sure there was no Jesus, no Moses, no Lao Tzu, no Buddha? I, I'm not concretely sure of that sure. at all. What I do feel confident in saying is that, number one, whether that person was a real physical human being is a, unimportant mm -hmm. compared to the power of the message of these people and, sure. their, and their true... And remember, you know, I've talked about this many times. What, what we often see with religions, we always see actually, is that somebody pops their cork, the head, top of their head comes off, they see the world a certain way. This, you can really see this clearly in, in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And, and, and then they, they or some other, someone else tries to share that experience mm -hmm. with other people and they fail. There's a whole uh, long passage in uh, a, Dom, a Tom Robbins novel called Still Life with Woodpecker about the whole idea of tunnel vision and how the most well-intentioned follower usually tend to screw up the insight of the masters they revere. Because one, there's life there, there's an inside that's alive, there's an inside that's vibrant, that's an inside that's really lived through one's experience. And when somebody else come along and say, what a wonderful idea, and they try to systematize it, they try to create an institution out of it, sometimes to protect it precisely because they worship it, they end up squeezing all the life out of it and turning it into something that in many cases is the opposite of. I mean, if you think about, you know, centuries of uh, official churches waging wars against each other in the name of Jesus who's all about, you know, forgive your enemy, turn the other cheek, that kind of thing. It's like, wait, what am I missing here? <laughs> you know, whereas the contradiction is so painfully obvious that it's like, really? That nobody's seen this? Come on, you know? So, you know, I, I want to take it a step further and say that I think it's not even, I mean, everything you said I agree with and... Like it, it may be even more fundamental. I don't even want to go in the direction of ascribing a motivation, you know, religious control, uh, money, um, power over others, many of the reasons why, you know, the institutions of religion often develop, political reasons, sure. basically. But I want to go further and say that I, I think it's just the nature of what we're talking about that it is not possible to, unless we can do the Vulcan mind meld like Spock. Sure. Or un, until, unless, until we can do that. Yeah. We just can't get the experience of someone else in our head. And Lao Tzu says this in chapter one of the Tao Te Ching, the first stanza he talks about, you know, the Tao that we can talk about is not the real thing. And so this is true of Christianity. We can't know if there was a Jesus Christ who was an actual guy who walked around and did some of this stuff. We can't know what it was to be him. We can't see the world he, the way he did. Ditto for Moses if there was a, a, a Jew on a mountain, you know, talking to some uh, uh, supernatural entity in the sky. We don't know what voice he heard in his head. Was he schizophrenic? Right. Um, what, was somebody really talking to him? Was it an alien? Was it God? Who, you know, none, we'll never know. No, historically, in fact, we don't know we're, we're, none of right. this stuff. We're... So, so, by the way, before we get back to Lao Tzu, I do want to say that one of the many things you and I share is a great love of Tom Robbins' writing. 
and my my actual favorite of his. And since this is a since we're talking about fiction and story uh, uh, this time around, um, I love I love Jitterbug Perfume. The Still um, Life with Woodpecker and Jitterbug Perfume. Those are, I mean, I love all of it in the sense that I can read uh, Tom Robbins, right? Uh, probably his grocery list, and I would find it exciting. Yeah, he's a great writer. The he he's been so cool. Like over the years, he's uh, often. We have email back and forth, and she would send emails to my mom. We kept in touch kind of with my dad as well and so on. And even his emails are written that way. Yeah, you know, even his emails are straight out of his, uh, they look exactly like a piece of his writing from a book. Like I get an email and it can be five lines, 10 lines, and I know I'm going to laugh my ass off and think it's brilliant at the same time because he's going to throw something in there that's pure genius. Well, he is definitely a brilliant guy. Yeah. I exchanged letters with him before there was email mm-hmm. i'm trying to remember as you're talking because it's quite some years ago what it was about i think i just wrote him and told him how much i loved perfume i think he might have read an early novel of mine called the cure for gravity and liked it anyway i, I don't recall exactly what it was but I, he was very charming so anyhow you know I, I i what you said is about louds of being you know very little information mm-hmm. about there is less um, by far about Lao Tzu than there is about Buddha. Yep. There's not um, you know, all these scores of uh, canonical literature, which is, are things that he is alleged to have said. Um, there's, there's none of that. What there is is a very um, prototypical uh, Chinese legend, you know, yep. born uh, old, grew young, uh, you know, came out of... There was a, like the Buddha, there's some white elephant or some white buffalo or something around when he was born, this sort of thing. Yeah. You know, he was born with these long ears. It showed his great wisdom. Bottom line is that, you know, if, if he didn't exist, and by the way, we, we don't really want, even though it's, it's, it's uh, traditionally said that he is the father of, of at least philosophical Taoism, we, we know... Um, we can trace Taoism back to shamanism and the state of yep. Chu and what is now uh, Myanmar, what is now Burma, um, uh, back you know a thousand years before Lao Tzu at least. So you know there are things written on the shells of turtles that showed divination rituals. Anyway, the whole animism and Chinese shamanism that goes that is the underlying uh, body of of thinking behind Chinese medicine mm-hmm. and many other things goes back long before the putative Lao Tzu. So even if, you know, if he didn't exist, then my dear and recently departed friend, Guy Leakley, who did a wonderful translation of the Tao Te Ching, people listening to this, if you're looking for a great uh, first translation to read of that fantastic book, then Professor Leakley, L-E-E-K-L-E-Y, his uh, Tao Te Ching, which is available online, is a, is, a, is a wonderful translation to start with. Anyway, you know, he and I would often discuss this, and he would say that he would translate the original uh, scrolls. He went mm-hmm. back, and he was a scholar, so he looked at a variety of different scrolls, the Malang Dwe scroll, other scrolls too. And he said that to his eye, there were at least five, maybe six, authors of the Tao mm-hmm. Te Ching. And and that they they each had their own flavor, flavor their yeah. own their own writing style, even yeah. their, the hand of the character and so on. So, you know, in those days, people copied. We had no Xerox machines, right? Sure. So people would copy. 
character. So if you were a really good scribe, you copied the character as it was written. Mm -hmm. So you would see the stylistic difference, which we're basically talking about handwriting. Right, right? yeah. Um, so he said on the basis of that, he felt like there were probably several. And what he, in his view, they were a coffee clutch of, mm -hmm. of, of rebels right. who were bridling uh, with the bit of Confucianism in their mouth in just the same way that the Essene Christians or the earlier follow, earliest followers of Jesus or even Jesus himself and rabbis of that time were rebelling against the orthodoxy of you know, Jewish law and you yep. can do this and you have to face this way and eat that and marry this and blah, blah, blah and pray like that. So uh, anyway, regardless of whether he was a real character, I, I like to think of him as real and I like to imagine as I read the Tao Te Ching this spectacular, insightful sage with a, a mind that was quiet enough to see nature, mm -hmm. not as a field biologist or sure. population geneticist or um, you know someone like the ecologist sees it, but just in the purest, the purest possible way, with a with a mind tuned to see every cycle, mm -hmm. every change, right. every subtle little development. And I think that in those days, whether or not this particular uh, wizard, this particular fortune teller, this particular shaman was real, um, if he wasn't, then there were many who were. And their job, you know, was to, and we've talked about this once or twice before, was to provide an oracular service, yep. you know, to the king of the whatever city-state he ruled at that time. And in this case, it would be the, the kingdom of the Eastern Zhou. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, some king of the Eastern Zhou dynasty would have needed a guy to tell him um, to divine nature for him and give him advice. So, so for example, he might have said... Um, might have said, "Look, uh, I don't have enough. I don't have enough troops sure. to defend north, south, east, and west. We got enemies everywhere." Some king, in this case, you know, of the Eastern Zhou, would look to a shaman like this for advice, and he might say, "I don't have enough men to protect all my borders. Where should mm -hmm. I put my troops so we're not invaded?" And and you know, this is an example that I like to use because it makes sense to me. It, like something like this could happen. Mm -hmm. That the wizard. Right. Would go down to the river, and these capitals were always built along a river. Mm -hmm. And he would look at the silt and at the flow of the river, and he might say, he might see in that silt some little mica, some little sparkle of some mineral that had been brought down from the high moraine. Mm hmm. By melting snow. And he would recognize that the fact that this mineral is present, glistening in the sand at the bottom of the river means that those northern passes up in the high mountains from which this river flows, from whence it flows, are melting. And it's too early for them to melt. It's just a freak thing. So he would go back to the king and he would say, put your, put your troops to the north quickly. 
because he would figure that the enemies would see this and see it an opportunity for a surprise attack. So, you know, the king would put his troops there and, and these guys would come through the pass and they'd be slaughtered and they would be found out and the, the, the wizard would save the day and the king would reward him by making him, you know, the second most powerful man in the kingdom, giving him concubines mm -hmm. and all that. So this was the kind of guy we were, were right. talking about, regardless of whether he lived or not. People like him certainly lived. Whether he himself wrote that book or other people wrote it and, and made him up as a, uh, in a very Chinese way, because ancestor worship and tradition is so mm -hmm. important in China as the, you know, the guy, and they ascribe every wise thing that was sure. said. And I mean, you know, you talk about this a bit in your wonderful series of uh, recordings on Taoism, which I hope everybody's already bought. Um, so I wanted to bring this guy to life. And really, nobody has done this. Certainly nobody writing in English has done it. But even in Chinese, for whatever reason, you see Lao Tzu referred to all the time. You see him as a uh, an amusing side character in some Shaw Brothers or early fantastical kung fu flicks where he's so flipping Schwab around. for two minutes and uh, yeah, that's right. Like says hi to everybody and off he goes off the scene. Right. So it just occurred to me. First of all, if a guy like this really lived, in the same way that I imagine is true of many of these religious cork popping leaders. I imagine he was no picnic to live with. Mm -hmm. You know, he was probably really direct. He probably just saw so much that the things that came out of his mouth were, you know, they were true speak, mm -hmm. but they were probably not greased with social lubrication right. to make them easy to swallow. And certainly his, his writings aren't that way. So I, I created this fictional guy in my head. It's a and, novel about Lao Tzu. Yeah, and I thought, what... What if, you know, he was looking for his soulmate? He wanted the love of his life. Where mm -hmm. would he find her? What kind of a woman would she be? And when I began to think about this, it occurred to me, wait a second, this is, this is the secret ingredient to this book about the giant turtle that goes back, you know, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I went back to that early draft. Oh, so here we go back to the loop. The Here's the loop. And so, right. So the turtle. They, they and, meet again. Exactly. Now. And again, I'm, I'm sharing this story because I think it's, you know, we, we said we would talk about the power of story, the power of fiction, the power of books. You know, I still maintain that even though we're living in a digital age, um, the people who run the world still to this day and the people who will run the world they may not write books but they definitely read them mm -hmm. and whether they're reading an e-book or they're reading a printed book the fact is that books in general are an opportunity to think deeply about things and one of the reasons I love to write books so much is that I love to have an excuse mm -hmm to think really about deeply certain, right. about something. And the reason why I love fiction most is I love to combine the thinking deeply about something and the telling a story. Yep. There's something magical about storytelling. You know, when you can come up with... Because, uh, you know, you can write all the philosophical books in the world and they can be great and they can be powerful, but there's... 
you know our monkey brain monkeys love stories you know we like uh, we like to be entertained with uh, a tale of characters that we can relate to forget this kind of stuff that makes you forget for a second about your identity your sense of self your particular condition and because you are so immersed into what's happening to those particular characters that you become those characters that you, why you become emotionally involved in watching a movie or reading a book or something along those lines and to me it's like that to me is one of the cardinal scenes of uh, a bad screenplay is when you don't give a fuck about what happens to the characters involved i'm like yeah that's a great story i totally don't care about what happens to anybody that's a bit of a problem because it's because mm, totally. then if i start thinking why am i watching this again that's not the whole point of what good fiction is about right and earlier today we were talking about a recent lecture i gave in which somebody asked me about this adage that they learned as as a student of writing from a writing professor you know write what you know mm -hmm. which is uh, in my opinion, an adage which is generated by writing teachers who are teaching beginning writers and they don't want to go through the pain of reading something that is written by someone who doesn't know what they're talking yeah, about and the misery of that. And so they, they write this as a sort of a basic thing, like if you don't know about this, don't, don't write about it. Don't bother, it. right. On, on the other hand, there are many great novels that are works of pure imagination. Um, and and they're not things that, you know, the, the writer really knows about. I think not only of Tolkien, who obviously didn't inhabit Middle-earth, sure. but of um, Michael Chabon's uh, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years back, which is this fantastical work about um, performing magicians and so on. And I don't know Michael very well. I don't know him at all, really, but um, I'm pretty confident he's, he's not one of those characters. So my response to that is, you know, write, write what you feel, not what you know. And yeah, I guess if by sure. write what you know, you mean it more metaphorically, meaning you know on a different level, like you know because, not because you literally are, right. I know everything about fishing, so I'm going to write a novel about a fisherman, you know, not necessarily that kind of what you know, but something that you have a temperature for, something that you can have, you can feel the pulse of it because you are passionate about. And again, passion and knowledge are not necessarily the same thing. They're not, but notice that you just used the word feel. Yeah. And you said no, exactly. you have something you That's can feel. I mean. So I think you're exactly right. The word no, you know, has all kinds of different levels of meaning from the biblical, you know, having sex to, mm -hmm. um, you know, an academic uh, mastery of facts. Mm -hmm. And I think most people construe this to mean you know, like, don't write a book about fishing if you've never fished. Right, right, right. Right? And if you're writing a nonfiction book, you know, do your research, do your homework. And if you're writing a, a novel or a short story, tap into something that that you know in the in the capital K sense sure. of the word, um, where you really viscerally feel it. Anyway, I, 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 got, I got this idea that it would be interesting to imagine Laozi as a lover, mm -hmm. as a kind of person who wanted a soulmate and having put two and two together and realized that the turtle is the quintessence the tortoise especially is the quintessence of earth energy I, I brought together this um, the story idea of Lao Tzu in love with the uh, my own passion for turtles and I had Lao Tzu commission an apprentice to cross the world, 
to bring him back uh, a, a tortoise, in this case a Galapago. Uh, and yes, by the way, there is evidence of early Chinese mm-hmm. sailors, um, maybe not quite as long ago as 500 BCE, but um, certainly very long time ago crossing oceans before we generally gave them credit for doing so. Anyway. So we got uh, fiction about Lao Tzu mixed with bestiality. Sound like a perfect <laughs> recipe. You found me out. Yeah. Um, by the way, before uh, we reveal more about the story, let me just say in response to what you said about not caring about characterism, I just finished, you know, we're talking about this novel Yin, Y-I-N, but I also, I, I just actually finished another one which is coming out a few months behind it, and there's sort of a one-two punch, and predictably enough is Yang, and I don't want to give away anything about that book because we'll talk about that some other time, but... I will say that in the course of writing that book, and I won't say who it was, I was writing a minor character. Mm-hmm. He was, and it was toward the end of the book. And the character was largely a, you know, a device to accomplish something in the plot, and that's okay to do, you know, as long as you don't have them be too intrusive. Um, and as I'm writing this, this fellow. All of a sudden, he says to me, Hey, I want the girl. And I'm, I say, what? And I mean, I'm having a conversation with him. And I say, no, no, you know, I got an outline for the story. And, you know, you don't get the girl. And he says, uh, yeah, you know what? Your outline is not my problem. I want the girl. And I go, and I find myself you know, defending my own outline to a fictitious character that I've created in, in my own mind. That's always uh, some very Robert E. Howard writing with yes. the threat of Conan cutting his head off unless he get the job done. It also sounds, you know, a little bit uh, John Nash, uh, uh, beautiful mind, schizophrenic, but, right. but I'm, I'm happily don't, don't suffer from that disease. But nonetheless, it did happen, and I'm thinking, I'm arguing with him, and, and it takes me a few days until I finally surrender and I go, you know... So I'm sorry, not only you argue with (laughs) a fictional character that you created, but you lost the argument with a fictional (laughs) character that you created. It's a wonderful part of it. Things to be proud of. I think you can put it down in your accomplishment list. So so I I realized that, you know, when I I emerged from my, you know, schizo stupor on this, I realized that now, this was absolutely one of the most marvelous experiences I'd had in my writing life. Right. Because, I mean, I'd like to think that I've had many characters come alive for me, but, you know, to have one absolutely arguing with me and telling me what to do and redirect the story. And, you know, sometimes it comes up that while you're outlining, you know, it, it, something appeals to you or occurs to you about a, a confluence of variables or something, a little plot twist or something that you didn't see right in the beginning when you began to think about the story and you go oh how delicious and you cackle and you rub your hands together and then you make that change and the story is the richer and the better for it but in this case you know I mean I was 90% done with the book so the moral of the story is guys don't write just in case you create a character that then will spank you brutally and put you back in your place just don't create those freaks so you know you, 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 you assume a lot about our audience when you Make the assumption that those things would be undesirable for right. everybody. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> right? So you know, maybe what every writer wants is to be beaten by his character by his into character. submission. Wow. Yeah, maybe not. 
But uh, anyway, so so back to the, the yin, the story. Um, so trying to avoid bestiality. That's but, always but, nice. Yeah, you know, there's, there's them that have done it before, but yep. I, I wasn't looking for that. Um, and, and so, of course, you know, I have this as a physically unre unrequited love affair. I can see how that would be complicated with a turtle. Now, it's if that was a sheep, that would be a whole different <laughs> story. But. Bend over, I'm driving. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a whole... It lends a whole different quality to a love story if physical consummation cannot happen. Of course. And, and so one danger of that is that it becomes too cerebral. Yeah. And then the audience is lost because, of course, what everybody wants you know, is, is an emotional, uh, romantic intimacy in a love mm -hmm. story, but they also want a physical intimacy. And sometimes if you, you know, look at Fifty Shades of Grey, that's all they want. Right. Um, even if it's all messed up, right? So what I, I got around that by, by imbuing Lao Tzu with the, with the intention and ability to do a magical thing and, and transform this turtle into a woman. And as so often happens in every story about perversions of nature no matter how well intended mm -hmm. they are from the island of Dr. Moreau to other very very familiar and famous ones that we all can think of um, things didn't you know work out ideally which is of course the conflict of the story and in some respects it's a very tragic and 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 memorable unforgettable I hope um, relationship and it is imbued throughout with this quality of love between two beings that is, you know, always burning and striving in a way that it's never going to quite work out. But I figured out a way to do it. Um, I don't want to say too much about that, but uh, I think it's um, uh, certainly one of the one or two best things I've done. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be Chinese if it wasn't tragic, unless it's like impossible and tragic uh, there wouldn't be the proper Chinese flavor to it when was the last time exactly. that you hear Chinese stories where everything works out great at the end so I, I did bring it to not exactly a Hollywood ending but not exactly a traditional yeah, Chinese exactly. ending either, yeah, right? yeah, definitely. I gave it an, an unexpected and you've read the yeah, book so you know what I mean I gave, it, I gave it a twist which is uh, satisfying I hope unexpected, interesting, different, you know. So it doesn't um, make, uh, you know, unlike the typical Chinese novel or movie for the matter. Right, it doesn't where everybody make, dies. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't make you want to shoot yourself in the head <laughs> by the time you're done watching it. I hope not. So, um, so then, then there's sort of part, part two of this unfolding of this novel because a little bit that I talked about already is how the story came to be. But So I, I began to, uh, I polished it and I felt good about it and um, I began to shop it around and my agent did and then I went on a holiday for Christmas with my family and I had been to Asia so this is uh, I guess 2013 um, Christmas time I had been to Asia a lot that year I knew I had more travel coming up I wanted the family to have a good vacation so we took a short trip and we went to California and we flew into Los Angeles and we drove up the coast. It's something I like to do, my own stomping grounds and all that. 
and I noticed that I was going to have New Year's Eve uh, in Carmel, lovely place, um, but not a vegan capital of the world, you know. Sure. And my family and I are, are vegan, so looking for some place to eat, and I figured, well, I'll find a Chinese restaurant that'll be safe, or some vegetables and tofu will be good. And I find a place. I call up to make a reservation, and I get somebody on the phone, and they say, you know, Tiny Red Duck, I help you. And I'm like, yes, I'd like to be. Yeah, don't just come in, no reservation. I said, well, you know, it's it's actually New Year's Eve I'm talking about. And he said, oh, very busy. And I said, right, that's why I'm calling him. So I made this reservation, but I wasn't really confident. And then a few weeks later, we show up there, and I, I mosey over to check on the place, and I find out that it's a takeout joint. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, so I was a little chagrined to take my family for New Year's Eve dinner to a you know Chinese that takeout, counts, right? yeah. but it seemed a little lowbrow even for me, even for the monk. Uh, and but they they had a couple tables there. And anyway, the die was cast. There was no place else to eat. It looked okay. We went there. We're sitting there. Waitress comes over, take the order, and I like to torture my son by asking him to speak Chinese. He's studied a long time and. He hates it when I do it. But I said, um, I say to the waitress, hey, why don't you speak to my son? He speaks Chinese. And my son in this, in this Asherian twist says to her, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to my father. His whole life is China. He's a Taoist monk. And I'm like, ah, damn it got out of it yep well very well i must say that was a perfect tai chi application right there he spiraled yeah silk reeling he silk reeled me right under the table absolutely so she looks at me this waitress and says you're a dance monk i say yeah it's true and my wife says yeah oh yes no he really is and, uh, and this woman produces a business card from her apron and it identifies herself as a scholar of chinese philosophy and literature at some august university and and I'm confused by this. And I say to her, uh, your friend? She says, no, that's me. And I, and I beg off the obvious question, then why are you serving? Waiting tables, waiting at, tables a takeout. at a takeout joint in, in, you know, in Carmel on New yeah. Year's Eve. And she says, oh, oh, and she sees my expression. She goes, oh, no, you know, my friend owns this restaurant I'm visiting and I'm just yeah. helping out. She says, may I, may I friend you on Facebook? <laughs> so I said, of course. Now, a week later, I'm home and I get this friend request and she writes me and she says, I've, I've bought many of your books and read them already. Jesus. Yeah. This was a week or two. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow, really? And she says, you know, you're really very serious about China and I, I like your work. And What are you working on now? I said, well, I've got this book about Lao Tzu and another one. She says, could I, could I see it? And the, you know, the paranoid New Yorker in me arises from the ashes of childhood and thinks, oh no. She's stealing my Don't, book. Not, not that she's stealing it, but just that sending manuscripts, you know, to China, sure. uh, inviting piracy, mm -hmm. and they're so notorious for all that. And, so I send her a snippet, a piece of it, and she writes me back a week later and says, I read that too, and I think it's the best thing you've done so far, and I really want to see the rest of it. And 
by the way, I have this friend who works for a very serious publisher in China, very famous. I'm sure they would like to publish this kind of book. And I write her back and I say, you know, I don't think so. I don't think that people in China take seriously a Western writer writing about what they think sure. they know better than we do. Of course. And she responded by saying, actually, you know, under the current government, there is quite a return to traditional culture and mm -hmm. national, you know, nationalism and pride in our tradition. And the fact that our history would be so validated mm -hmm. by, uh, you know, a good Western writer who's published a lot of books and so on is, could be very attractive. Mm. May I send it to him? So she tells me the name of the publisher. I look it up. They're real. And I just decide to take a crapshoot. And I say, you know, they can contact me. And they do. And, and I set up a meeting with them a few months hence. And I go in the spring of 2013. And I have a long series of meetings with them for some weeks. And in the end, we sign some contracts for them to publish multiple books. They want film rights in Chinese language and so on and so forth. And, and this evolves into what might be the first literary, cooperative, cultural exchange venture around a piece of fiction right. between the U.S. and China. Because, of course, the publisher is you know, uh, guided by the culture ministry and the government's control of all that. So all of this from a chance, if you believe in that sort of thing, yeah. a chance uh, in, uh, dinner at a, at a takeout joint New in Year, New Year yeah. Eve in Carmel. Right. At the Far from yeah, my home that's, in Florida. Right? Yeah, when you think about all the 7 million ways that people try to get their stuff published... And, uh, you know, the fact that usually, you know, you try like a dog this way, that way, that the more orthodox way and things don't click necessarily despite all the work that people put into. The fact that you end up with that kind of an occasion out of a takeout right. by it's Carmel. A, it's just amazing. The universe is a weird place, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, a weird place. And then, you know, for another, you might be thinking if that was 13, you know, here we are 50 year and a half later or more, but almost two years later. But the truth is that to get, it, it's a sad statement, oh, I yeah. guess, about the state of American publishing, sure. to get an American publisher to understand what an opportunity there was sure. here for a liaison with the Chinese. You know, there was recently an article in the LA Times about, so this I guess would have been uh, in the middle of September of 2015, uh, called Broken Dreams, I think is what it was called about, you know, all these media ventures that have failed, mm -hmm. uh, that American movie houses and, you know, pr production companies and agents and everybody's trying to do business with this huge market and things just never yeah. really pan out. Yeah. I don't want to say never, but, but rarely pan out. Of course, at the same time, not only is it a huge market, but, you know, I, I was amazed to see and that recent Tom Cruise uh, Mission Impossible movie that, you know, uh, everything was Chinese. Mm -hmm. Chinese production houses, producers, money, yep. all, all Chinese. Um, it was amazing. I can't remember what they called, yep. you know, Chinese movie studios or some name like that. Uh, of course, so it is happening. But doing business with, with Chinese people... Yeah, that's a whole different game. Right. 
And, you know, when my American publisher, you know, rings their hands and says, oh, you know, they don't hear from them or that, I just tell them, listen, the culture is so different. The priorities are so different that what's really happening here is you are actually, in fact, doing business with the far side of a little moon of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might as well, that's how much you have in common with what yeah. you think is important and what they think is important. And most people just don't have the patience for this. Of course. Of course. It's like, I don't want to deal with that. I know how to do business a certain way. If they can play ball, screw them. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't feel that way. And, and I've nurtured it along. We'll see how it goes. So But let's get that straight. So you got two novels coming out in U.S. and in China. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Quite right. badass, Mr. Rosenfeld. The, when are we talking about? So the first one will be available uh, in November of 15. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second one I'm planning for uh, late March or early April. I like the idea, since they are yin and yang, of having a one-two punch. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right, yeah. You don't want to leave too long in between. No, usually you leave at least a year. But in this case, I feel like because of other things in the universe and sure. the Chinese involvement and all that, that... Uh, And this has to do also with film rights and various other So you have two books aspects. coming out in two separate countries at the same time within a six-month span or seven-month yes. span, something like that, maybe yeah. less. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah, indeed. Is that, I mean, beside, so what, where you're at right now, I mean, you're teaching Tai Chi as usual, you know, you teach your classes, private, public classes, you teach seminars, that's what's going on. Um, Are... How long has it been since you've done a fiction book? I think it was 2007 or 2009. Okay, was the so, last that's, one. Uh, so that's a while. That's a while. Yeah. And then I did the book on Tai Chi in between. And I, and I put up that Taoist Manifesto, which you mm-hmm. shared or I shared with you and we talked about. I put it online and I got a lot of responses to it so I took it down because I thought you know what this is going to be another a non-fiction book which will be more like some of the things that you do right about Taoist thinking but it'll be applied to the world at large and I think too that you know I, I I've told you for many years that I I consider my martial arts school to be a philosophy school with a major in Chinese Kung Fu you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so taken with the these Taoist ideas about the world and You know, these books, these novels are sort of taking medicine mm-hmm. in a candy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't even know you're taking a medicine. They're yep. so delicious. I hope they're delicious. Yep. Going down that you don't even know it. But subtly, the way you see the world is different. Subtly, you know, little things open for you. And I, I like that kind of work. Absolutely. Even because sometimes, you know, you want to give uh, a lot of philosophically dense work you suggest it to people and unless you have that mind or you have been trained that way after a while it's like I'm interested in the idea but it's like I'm interested when you tell me about those ideas when I go to the original sources they are dead to me they don't speak you know there's the and so in, the, in that sense having that ability to translate some potentially complex comp, uh, concepts in a way that people don't even realize that they are absorbing them, but they are because it's through storytelling. It's through a medium that's so much easier to digest. Sometimes it's not a bad idea. Sometimes it's a concept that I dig quite a bit. 
Like I, but it's funny because I noticed for myself that I can read a lot of non-fiction even if I'm not that crazy about it because it's non-fiction. You know, I may derive something, some useful knowledge from it. You know, fiction on the other hand, on one end is easier to like it. On the other end, like the fiction I like, I tend to like it more than non-fiction. But the fiction I like is few and far between because it's like to me because it's uh, fiction is about pure pleasure it's not about necessarily serving a purpose then i want that then it bet you know if 20 pages in i'm not thinking hey i'm having a good time here i'm like why are you wasting my time you bastard you know i'm here to have fun it's kind of like that uh, it's like speed dating where you're deciding in okay you have two minutes to make an impression right now go you know which obviously is a little weird but at the same time for me a lot of fic- like i was thinking back about how much fiction I've read, I don't really read that much fiction, you know? I've There are some many fiction books that I've read that I love like crazy, but so often, like, I don't want to read average fiction, you know? I don't want to read fiction. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's all right. It's like I want things that draw me in dramatically, whereas a lot of the middle-of-the-road stuff I have no problem with non-fiction. I can read the... Uh, stuff that doesn't make me wild and crazy if it's non-fiction because I always have in the back of my mind of hey I'm I'm getting something useful out of it you know you know as you were talking when you first started talking about this I was thinking about this series that was published in Harvard University in the early 2000s and they did um, I, I want to say ecology I think that's what it was they did a series of books on world religions and their view on mm-hmm. ecology so there's one on Taoism, one on right. Buddhism, one on uh, Christianity, one on Hinduism, and so on. Um, and and I have the book on on Taoism and you know ecology and environment. And I've been reading it actually on this trip out to see you. I've been reading it on the plane and so on. And um, I think the ideas and and they're very thought provoking, and I really like it. But even for a guy who is incredibly dedicated and passionate mm-hmm. to this as the focus of his intellectual life and his physical life I'm out there you know teaching and moving yeah. the, the experiencing these ideas in movement even it's very dense it's very slow going um, and, and I'm finding you know a few pages at a time are it what you're talking about with your feelings about fiction and having not read a lot first of all you know in my case because I was a literature major early on and always loved to read you know I, I love to escape into books as a mm-hmm. child. Right. I mean, as a child, I devoured fantasy, sure. science fiction. Um, you know, this was just a way... Mm-hmm. didn't have an internet. Um, this was a way of, you know, the same urge that is to play games or sure. you know, to do World of Warcraft or to communicate with other... I, I would just disappear. Well, no, I feel the like the joy of having in your hands great fiction. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing. But is uh, it needs to be great. That's right. So, you know, you're, you're talking about it needs to be great is a function, I think, of your own education, sophistication, wisdom, your palate. Just like people who love fine wine, um, you know, uh, I remember that my dad was a, was a wine connoisseur. Uh, I mean, he still is, a, not as much. Uh, he's a little bit too old to drink much now, but... You know, he used to really, really fancy great wine, and he was mm-hmm. a member of some elite uh, wine-tasting organizations and so on. 
and he had, my dad is a physician, and he had a patient who at that time owned the company Manischewitz, which made, you know, the Jewish ritual wines, which were just execrable stuff. Um, they were really not, you know, they were grape juice. Mm -hmm. okay? But um, a lot of people loved them for the holidays and so on. And I remember overhearing a conversation between <laughs> between the, my dad and this guy. My dad said, you know, you, you, you come to my house and you drink these wonderful wines and you love great wine. How can you possibly make that Manischewitz yeah. uh, drivel, dreck, yeah. caca? And this guy, Cliff Adelson, he said, looked at my dad in complete seriousness and he said, I do not consider it wine. I consider it my business. I consider it Manischewitz red drink. <laughs> so I think, you know, that we get more demanding about the quality of the fiction we read yeah. because we don't want to waste time. Yep. Part of it is an awareness of our, our mortality. How much mm -hmm. time, how many more books am I going to read yep. um, in my life? How much time do I have to spend with my kid? Mm -hmm. How much time do I have to spend to get my work done? Is this worth yep. disappearing into? Exactly. Has this writer created yep. a world that is compelling and seductive and exciting and delicious enough? Precisely. Right, to disappear I have the same into. thing about movies. I have the same yeah. thing about, it's like, it better be a good move. I don't have time. I don't need to be entertained. I want to be inspired. I want to be, I want to feel, I want to be elevated. I want something awesome out of it. I don't want to, I don't need, I don't have the problem of having two hours to kill. So to me, the average movie, I don't want to watch the average movie. I certainly don't want to watch a bad movie, but I don't want to watch an average movie either. I want to watch stuff that's going to mm, turn something on in me. Otherwise, I feel like if I thinking like, okay, where's the fast forward button again? I'm watching the wrong movie. You know, it's like that's just not, like if uh, you're skimming pages. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, and that's how to me is precisely because I love fiction and precisely because I love movies. I don't really watch that many of them, and I don't even read that much of it. Right. It's uh, I it's either super high quality or nothing. I don't want the in between. And um, and that's kind of how I think sometimes I'm too rigid and then I miss some stuff along the way that probably I would dig more if I actually give it the time to play with it rather than just be like, no, if within three pages you haven't changed my worldview, then screw it. That's it's a little much, you know, it's because uh, uh, also there's the, an issue of expectations. It's like comparing it back to dating. If you're going there and you're thinking... Hey, what, what do you want? It's, it's, it has already been half of the night and you haven't rocked my world yet and I am, I'm not head over heels in love. So why are you wasting my time? Why, why don't, it's like, that's not the way it works. You know, you need to be a little more playful about things for sure. So I acknowledge that my approach is mildly psychotic, but hey. Actually, I think you, as you often do, hit upon two very important points. One is the issue of entertainment the other is the difference between judgment and discernment. Mm -hmm. So as far as entertainment goes, you know, you have a, an intellectually and emotionally rich and interesting life. And so you are in a wonderful position, as am I, of not having time to waste or care to waste time on things that are not really, you know, completely engaging. The entertainment business exists because, you know, most people in the world regrettably do not have this kind of life. Right. And so their lives are either not as full as that, 
not as realized as that, not as advantaged as that, um, or, you know, even worse, they're full of suffering, mm -hmm. they're full of frustration, they're full of misery. So yeah, and anything for, that can take you away from right. two hours. They're looking for an escape, and it's the same thing as they get from smoking a, you know, a, a good bong or, you know, other recreational yeah, drugs. Yeah, how and, people do stuff, I think, yeah, that's the difference right there. It's like you can be talking about the same stuff, and depending on how you approach it, You know, the same way as somebody can have the greatest experiences through some mind-altering substance, somebody else is just looking for some color to an otherwise shitty life. And I think that's what happens with... Uh, that's why, to me, is like what people do doesn't necessarily tell me much about the people. Is how they do certain stuff tells me much about that person, you know? Cause you know, uh, right. It's tempting to say that... You know, some people just need to get off their ass or they need to focus or they need to prioritize their life or they need to have uh, rework their habits. Mm -hmm. Just make changes. Do, you know, yeah. don't, don't complain about it. Fix it. You know, yep. all that. And we have this whole library, enormous library of self-help videos and books and, and TV shows and and resources online and psychics and astrologers yeah. and psychiatrists and I mean all this because people really want some help with that and traditionally they had a village right. um, and now they don't now they're isolated and they live by themselves mm -hmm. they're physically and emotionally disconnected and they think that the internet is a substitute for that and, and all that and so most people when they hear this kind of tough talk about as our, as our friend that we talked about earlier um, you know told you about something you know you don't feel well do something about it whatever yeah I, I think that people want to um, some of them have the intellectual and energetic and financial and uh, situational wherewithal to make those changes some of them don't some of them desperately want to make changes and they can't but I think everybody regardless of their circumstances is looking for someone to give them a prescription on exactly how to do that yeah and unfortunately you know although there are many such prescriptions available those prescriptions um, benefit the prescriber more, more than, than the prescribee yeah exactly. um, and, and that means that you know you sell books or you, you you sell videos or whatever but very few people just like nobody really learns martial arts from a video right um, and, and nobody uh, experiences the um, deep and potentially life-altering a process of a Freudian analysis by, um, you know, reading a, a 1495 self-help paperback. It just doesn't work. Right. So, you know, I, I, I have the same, you know, to, I'm, I want to fall into the same disdain for a pure entertainment that you mentioned, but I, I stop short of it because I just recognize there's so many people out there who, for whom that's No, no, but in got. fact, I'm not saying like, I'm not judging it. Right. As, a, as a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just not for you, right? Exactly. Now. I've had yeah. times in my life where the idea of give me some bad, bad movies, give me some better, yeah, give me five bad movies that I can spend the entire day from when I wake up to when I go to sleep watching, and I'll be perfectly happy. Right. That would actually be a dream come true. 
So I'm not judging you. I don't yeah, think when I feel well, I, like, I want you know exactly. I want to serially watch Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies because right. I don't want to think hard, but I can't fall asleep and I'm coughing yeah. or I'm in pain or so, you know, something no, like that. No, I'm not at all uh, yeah, yeah, putting yeah. A, um, a like putting it down. Yeah, I'm right. not putting it down at all. Like oh, people who do that are stupid. Da da da. It's not like that at all. It's the way I am right now and the way I've been now for quite a while. Is, um, you want more? I think because there's so much. Uh, yeah, I'm like a Disney princess. You know, I all the Disney princesses <laughs> have the trip of uh, but I want more that kind of thing. I think that's what's going on. Yeah. The, um, well, I mean, I think that's a good thing, actually. Yeah, I think it's like I have too much stuff that I want to do, that I want to make happen, right. that I want to. I have too many toys to play with, so to speak. And I don't mean materially. I mean on a. Mm another level that I really have I feel that sense of like unless it's really doing something to move me forward I don't want something just to entertain me right now and again maybe I'm actually kind of hoping that at some point I get to a place in my life where I'm like you know what I've done 3,000 things I wanted to do I wouldn't mind spending three months staring at the wall and watching movies as soon as I come home and just be have a very and that's all. And I don't, I'm looking forward to filling the day. Like, just like, let's see how do I beat boredom today. Let's see how do I, I don't think it's a terrible thing. It's just not who I am right now. You know, what's interesting is that I think all of the entertainment business has moved so thoroughly into the digital realm. Mm-hmm. That where that great creativity and youthful energy and brilliance is manifesting is not as much in books. Right. And it may be just sheerly a numbers game. It may just simply be the number of people who are drawn to apply that kind of creative intelligence to the yep. literary pursuit as opposed to, you know, writing some great code for a new app, yep. um, you know, doing an online game, moving into the um, uh, the Oculus Rift and writing sure. VR uh, software and all that. I mean, there's just, you know, you said it when they're, when you mentioned having so many toys, there are many avenues yeah, for creativity yeah, now. And, you know, I, I guess that it, like in so many things, um, I, I, I may be old, but I, I don't like to think of myself that way, but I certainly will confess to being old school. And, and I'm that way with my martial arts training and with a lot of other mm-hmm. things. So, you know, that brings us to discernment versus judgment. And I think a lot of the things you're talking about really have to do with discernment. I think when you read um, something where uh, I I mentioned to you earlier that in the process of uh, editing Yin, the book we've been talking about today, the one about Lao Tzu, in the process of editing it, you know, through the various drafts and editors and copy editors and proofreaders and so on, I keep seeing more than, than I needed to fix until... I reached a point where okay, it's in the it's in a galley proof now. It's in a reader's copy for, it's done. Thing, and, right. and it's done. And the next step is that it's it's at, as a book, and I still find you know sure. seventy little corrections to make. I change a word, I take out a comma, I put in a comma, yeah. whatever it is. You know, little little stuff at this mm-hmm. stage. It's pretty clean, but I think that this issue of discernment. You know, a friend of mine who's a writer said to me, a very good writer actually. Uh, my friend Tom Peake, he wrote a, a lovely novel called Daughters of Fire about Hawaii and the history of Hawaii, but more about 
the mystical side of Hawaii and Hawaiian culture and uh, shamanism mm -hmm. and the politics of Hawaii and the military and uh, tourism and big government and all that stuff. It's a fantastic book. Um, he said to me, how do I know when I'm done with this? And I said, oh, I, I've... He said, you know, you've written so many books. Tell me, how do you know? How do you know? Give me a, give me a prescription. Give me an Rx for this. How mm -hmm. do I know? I said, well, I got an Rx for you. I said, here's how it goes. When you open the book, the file, the printed pages, and you look at it, and you immediately run to the bathroom and vomit, then you know you're done. <laughs> right? Until then, you're still spit-shining right. and polishing. So, you know, we talk about this the judgment and discernment. And I think, you know, some of the things you may be is you're applying a very sophisticated, intellectually rich and practiced eye to the things you're reading now. And, you know, that's when you just sort of made clear for me that, no, you're not judging entertainment. You're just saying what you're you're discerning what you need now. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I see many books that I read. Um, I, I tend to have this regrettable compulsion. And I really mean that it's regrettable. I'm not gaming no. when I say that. I mean, I, I don't think it's good to to really feel like I should finish a book if I bought it. Really? Yeah. And and I think this comes from um, no no, it's not you know from having spent the twenty bucks on a hardcover and goddamn it, I'm going to get my money yeah. worth. It's not that at all. It is from an empathic point of view. My God, I know how much work this was. Yeah. And yeah, so you know, if I get halfway through. And I just don't care about the characters anymore. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you no. know, I'm not going to force myself to finish. But, but I I'm, want to give the writer the benefit of the yeah. doubt. And you know, I would say it's like fifty fifty, fifty percent of the time. I like, oh, oh my god, why did I do that? It was crap all the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And fifty percent of the time, I go, yeah, you know, he or she kind of pulled it out at the end, and I'm glad I stuck with it. No works. But that discernment in everything. You know, is what makes work good. It's why, why your books are good. It's why your recordings and your podcasts are great. It's why you have apply this passion to uh, the new podcast, and why you told me how. You know, if it's if it's not exactly right, you'll start it over. You really want it to be, you know, uh, history on fire, indeed, yeah. right? Yeah. I think this is this is how we ought to feel about our creative work. Yeah. If we don't feel that way about our creative work, yeah, it's not know, why uh, do it. Is uh, let's have uh, I'll do a podcast that's kind of like lukewarm history, <laughs> you know. It's like matches history. No, it's history on fire. It has to be like it's either passionate and powerful or go home. What are we doing? You know, what are we wasting time? And I feel that well, but do tell enough about my weird feelings. So you got these two coming out now. Mm -hmm. What's the next? I mean, obviously, first the next step is going to be pat yourself on the back when it all happens and you have them in your hands and hopefully you don't feel like going to the bathroom to throw up, but you feel more like patting yourself on the back saying, job well done. In the ideal world, they actually do act on the film rights and make something happen with that, which would be pretty badass. Um, so we're going so far forward into the future because there are so many things in the, between now and then that have to happen. But what do you think? Um, are there stories that you have in mind that you're dying to write? Is there something else that you have on the horizon? Or do you think, you know, there's so much on my plate as is just seeing what happens with these two books coming out? You know, patting myself on the back does not happen. And it does not happen, one, because I'm not sufficiently flexible, 
and two, because I'm not sufficiently flexible. Um, right? And, That's and, the main. Uh, yeah. So intellectually, um, I mean, physically, I can't do it, and and intellectually, you know, probably a bit of a defect in my character. Um, uh, one yet yet one more of those. Uh, I, I I'm not the kind of guy who rests on his laurels or. Not rest, you know, go, but you need yeah. that moment where you go, damn, that was good. You know, I get it during the actual creation. At the moment? Yeah, I love, I, I love both the phase of coming up with the story, creating the characters. I love that rush of pure creativity, which is so addictive in every field, right? Right. So we all love that, whether we're painting or, mm -hmm. or composing music or writing a story. I think we all love that. But I also really like... The polishing. Mm -hmm. I love making it a more and more and more beautiful diamond. Right. Um, and and so I I am one of those guys who really just would rather be doing that than anything else except possibly doing my Tai Chi practice. I, I really my, I'm fully engaged. I feel like you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing when I write those books. And I think. Part of what you're asking in terms of what comes next, and, you know, I got, I have two more in mind that are um, following the sim similar. I don't, I don't want to use the word formula, but it's the only one I got right now. The same sort of format, at least, mm -hmm. where I take the ancient time of ancient China and the modern world, and I, I interleave them together. So one chapter is then, and another chapter is now, and I and I. I, t I tell a story that compels me. Um, you know, Yang is about a, uh, a little jade robot uh, at the time of Kublai Khan. Um, but it, it's so... It's, it's interwoven with the peak and the rise and fall of Islam, the siege of Baghdad, um, the new developments in artificial intelligence and what does it mean? Where are we really just um, a, a stepping stone to create a superior intelligence which ultimately will keep on creating more and more and more intelligence until the real universe is, is able to become aware of itself and its purpose as some writers and, and scientists have speculated. So there are a lot of ideas in, in Yan too. And, then in, and that one is finished. The third one um, is in the in the group. I don't want to call it a series; it's not a series. Mm -hmm. But the third one in the group, I I became romantically fascinated by this um, character in Chinese history who was actually quite demonstrably real, um, and who concocted, invented, created a form, a, a way of using the long lance, the long spear, a ten foot spear which was used down through the ages, including hundreds of years after she died, to defend the Great Wall of China. It made mm -hmm. the Great Wall of China a practicable um, defense strategy or mm -hmm. uh, you know, construct. Um, and, and I have her reincarnated as an Amur or Siberian tiger. Um, she single-handedly uh, fended off the Manchus, the Mongols, um, the Southern Song, her own people who were trying to displace her. She protected her family, her province. It became a little governorship, a little kingdom of her own. And she was probably, you know, a 90-pound woman. Um, 
imagine, you know, defending herself against the Mongol hordes yeah, just by herself. Her right? the, so what, that's a what, historical what, character. Yeah, she's a historical character, Yang Miaojin. Um, and, and she, the, the Chen Tai Chi uh, spear form is actually based on that Yang family. Not Yang as in sure. Yang Tai Chi, but uh, on her work. And then I really like writing about the plight. Well, I don't like writing about the plight, but I'm compelled to write about the plight of tigers and the environment being destroyed in northern mm -hmm. Russia and the border of China. So I made her this character who comes back and has to deal with the same Dynamics people who besieged her right. when she was a human uh, as, a, as a tiger. And then in the fourth book uh, is about the Han, uh, uh, the, the Tang dynasty rather, and you know, sort of arguably the pinnacle of Chinese culture. And it's about uh, an intrigue at the court, and it has more animals in it, but I don't want to give away too much about that, but sure. very exciting stuff. So right now, you know, I'm doing social media to promote these books. You know, publishers don't do what they used to do. They can't just take out ads sure. and get reviews in the New York Times and hope for a bestseller. It's all about spreading the word. I hope people will hear this and, and share it, go buy the book, and when they like it, you know, do their own posts about it and tell their friends, because that's how that's how literature sure, is, is, you know, persists yeah. now. It's the survives. Same way, of course. Yeah. Well, like anything else, it's word of mouth. Uh, word of uh, mouth. Through social media. That sounds quite good, my good man. Anything else that you want to throw out there? I mean, I'll put the Twitter link, the, um, I don't know, Facebook page, whatever you want, or your website. Yeah, Twitter and Facebook, and I'm putting up some photos, uh, you know, of Asia, that I took in my travels on Instagram, um, Monkey and Row, on all, all that. And my website, you know, monkeyandrow.com. Um, but I guess you'll put all that up. That's it. I just hope that people keep reading, keep enjoying, you know, great fiction. I hope that they enjoy these books and uh, spread the word about them and continue to think deeply and enjoy great story. Hard to beat that. Ecco bravo. Esatto. Arthur is always a trip. Sorry about the echoey nature of that, but that was a Bellelli original. Yeah. Fancy uh, Eagle Rock studio. Sorry. One mic in a giant room with high ceilings. Uh, it kind of screws up the audio That's a bit. It's kind of like being there, though. You're yeah. over in the corner in a chair. Yeah. No, I was, I was afraid it was going to be even worse than it came no, out. It, was it wasn't terrible. that bad, but yeah, it's a definitely a different sound quality. Arthur's the same self, though. Yep. Good man. Onru? On? Yunru. Yunru. I'm making it up. I don't know. I don't know how you say it. But speaking of I don't know how you say it, shall we do donations first? Well, and sure. thank the sweet souls who sent us some donation. And because we haven't done it last time, there's actually a little more this time, which is always sweet. Well, actually, you know, I heard since you are the most interesting man in podcasting, those whose names are botchered, yeah. perhaps you're saying it wrong. It's my, I see. I see. I think I think you're right. I think I'm pronouncing your name so correctly. Some folks and you out. need to. Yeah, I think you're perfectly correct so there you go Frico Farrell uh, <laughs> let the pottering begin either Jan or Jan I never learned it despite the fact that you're a multiple time donor uh, Jan Fleischer um, Mateus oh Jesus good Christ that's not the name Jesus good Christ it's just that the last name is challenging 
Let me try. Zieckonski. Sorry, man, that's my best bet. Uh, Mateus Zieckonski. Pretty cool. Ryan Peterson, Jonathan Waterloo, Alexander Kuzner, Maurizio Mezzatesta, David Peterson, David, uh, not Ray, not Ray, R-E-A-Y, I'm confused, David, something with an R, uh, Robert Detrick, uh, or Dietrich, Aaron McLaughlin, Lee Watson, Philip McKay, Kondowani Conge, Lisa Robles, uh, Rob, which, by the way, thanks Lisa, I, I think... I believe he was from you, if I'm remembering correctly, but again, I've been recording today for like eight hours, so my brain is a little scrambled. I believe I got a thank you note from you, if it was you. Thank you, thank you, double thank you. Robert Primus and uh, Raghav Singh. That's our list. You guys are sweet humans. Thank, thank you, you for so supporting much. us. Um, as usual, Taoist Lecture Series, if you want to check it out and you haven't done so already, seven hours plus of material for less than $10. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, my new book is out called Not Afraid. There's a link in the episode notes. If you want to support um, Albert's ideas, well, mine too, I guess, for the, um, this community center, we have an Indiegogo page for mixing flotation, martial arts, uh, venue for live podcasting and the whole thing. Um, thank you to Daisy House for the music. Thank you to Audible and Kurakao for being affiliates. And uh, what's the status? Where are we at on Kiva? Kiva keeps climbing. It's over $35,000 in donations from you kind folks. And uh, with Christmas season around, an awful good thing to give out to that bratty niece or nephew is a Kiva card so that they can actually take something and help somebody else out in the world. Maybe teach them a little lesson. Perhaps it'll stick. I'm not betting it will. But it'll still still help somebody out. Money comes back. They can donate it again. Speaking of Christmas gifts, I see you with... uh giant bottle of alpha brain that i've scored thanks to on it thank you guys so much we appreciate it and that helped make this eight hour long day a lot easier uh anything else we need to touch on that's it it's getting close to christmas y'all i hope you have a good holiday indeed And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation.
Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and... Uh, uh, your accent, it just... Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about... Can you translate for me, please? I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work.